I just fell on my knees. I said, God, if you're real, help me. All these years, I had flirted with death. But when I felt like I was going to die, I wanted to live. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tales from the Journey. I'm Stephanie Zamora and today we are here with Danny Sanchez and I'm really excited for this interview. I had an opportunity to read his book. He shared it with me and it's amazing. Danny grew up in the juvenile incarceration system and lived a violent life, including police brutality, suicide attempts, and surviving multiple stabbings. Today, Danny is a city chaplain and the founder of the City Peace Project, a nonprofit organization in San Jose, California, where he inspires youth through his innovation as a social entrepreneur. And his book is also called Post Traumatic Quest, My Quest to Transcend Trauma, Turn My Pain into Purpose and Find Peace, which is such a beautiful title and is so aligned with this show. So Danny, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Let's start with you sharing a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called the City Peace Project. We started with public high schools, but now we're from K through 12th grade. We do mentoring, life coaching, conflict resolution, goal setting, and just helping students to stay focused, you know. And it's something that uh, personally for me, I wish I had like a coach or a mentor in my life when I was younger to kind of guide me through. I'm also the lead crisis responding chaplain for the Mayor's Gang Prevention Task Force in San Jose. We respond to homicide and bedside intervention for youth violence. That's incredible. And you had, so again, thank you for sharing your book with me. We're going to link to it in the show notes and we'll definitely talk about it more later on in this interview, but it was such an incredible read. And right out the gate, right from your childhood, there was just a lot of chaos and a lot of exposure to violence and guns. Like that was like the first thing, the first story that you share is just, and I think you even wrote this in your book, like it's insane that (laughs) you and your brother like survived your childhood. So I would love if you could take us back to kind of the beginning of your journey, what your childhood was like, and how some of those experiences shaped you. Yeah, like you shared, you know, my childhood, there was guns around my house, there was domestic violence. It was interesting because, you know, I have these two histories, right? These two uh, pictures of my past. One of the fun times we're having, you know, my family sitting together and eating and one with my mom and dad arguing or we're hiding behind a couch. And part of the things that I've seen in my life a lot were, you know, drugs and guns and fighting and arguing in our home. And it just made me really fearful. You know, I I didn't know when my life was going to fall apart very young because, you know, my dad would storm out of the house. My mom would be yelling. So it was just a partially like a scary time. But I try to remember the the good times. But they're very spotty. You know, when I was younger, they're just, you know, sometimes I remember playing in the backyard with my brother, my dad working in the car, my mom cooking dinner. But then there's these other episodes that happened in between. Seeing violence in my home and seeing the violence in my community, I thought it was just what everybody did as a child. I wasn't really a violent person when I was younger, but I knew I had to protect myself. And I think that's what kind of shaped me. You know, my coping mechanism was like, well, I'll fight back no matter what, or I'm not going to let anybody hurt me. That's kind of an intense way to start out life. I mean, having domestic abuse and having violence in the house, but also having that worldview of And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like there was almost this like necessity to violence in your mind. Like this is something that I actually I need to cultivate in myself. And that might not have been a conscious thought. But if it was something that you felt like you needed to incorporate into your way of being in your life, like that's just such a intense way to start out life. But you didn't know any better. I mean, that was your world. Share with us how that really influenced your path 
and how that led you to being incarcerated? Well, you know, school was terrible for me. I was a mama's boy. I always wanted to be home. When my mom and dad were divorced when I was about four years old, and I felt a sense of loss. I, I didn't want to be alone, and I never wanted my mom to leave because I thought that she would leave also. And when I went to school, I would throw tantrums. Like, I was one of those kids that, like, you know, to get what I wanted, I would throw a tantrum. I remember my mom, you know, one time we were in a Kmart, and I wanted a toy, and I knew she had no money. I mean, I didn't know she had no money, but she didn't have any, any money, and she stuffed it in her purse and, you know, sold the toy for me. That's how much of a, like, I, I got to keep it real. I was a brat. <laughs> I wasn't, you know. <laughs> but I, I think when I went to school, it was terrifying because I lost control. When my dad left the home, I had no control of my dad not being there. I loved my dad to be there. You know, whether he was playing with us or they were arguing, as long as he was there, I wanted him present. When he was gone, I felt this heavy sense of loss. And then I couldn't control any situations. And then my mom would go out a lot when I was younger. And I would hold on to her arm, not wanting her to go out. She worked 12 hours a day. She was a young mother. She still wanted to go out. And I would throw tantrums like, don't go. And she'd have to put me to bed. I think my grandparents had her put, because we live with my grandparents, had her put me to bed. And I would cling to her, you know, every night, hoping that she wouldn't leave because I was going to her or she would take me with her to the disco. But I remember the first day of school, I threw the tantrum of all tantrums. I, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to be with my mom. And I had no power over that. She left me at school and I had no idea how to navigate school at all. I don't remember like reading at home or coloring ABCs. I, I just don't remember that. So for me, it was really hard learning. It was very difficult from the beginning. So I acted out in other ways, you know, as some children do. I acted out like making funny noises in class, not sitting in my seat, picking at other people, irritating the teacher, anything that I wouldn't get called to do something so that I wouldn't be exposed that I didn't know. You know, and I'm kind of moving through my grades, but that's that's kind of how it was. And so honestly, like elementary school is one of the worst experiences of my life. I look back and I felt like I was always in trouble when there was recess because I didn't do my work. I would be kept in class to do work that I didn't have any idea how to do. So I was constantly in trouble and I was constantly playing around and a few fights happened in, in elementary school, but I wasn't really like a fighter fighter, but it was just like the neighborhood. Somebody bumped you or said something to you, you just fight. I didn't give it a second thought. I'm from the Silicon Valley. You know, everybody looks at the Silicon Valley. This is the tech capital of the world. I'm from the heart of the Silicon Valley, San Jose, right? Eastside San Jose, it's different. It's a different side to the Silicon Valley everyone sees in, you know, Forbes or any other type of magazine or business week or whatever it is. And it's beautiful. I'm not saying that in a negative way. It's a beautiful place. I love the culture. And you can see the influence of the art and the food and everything around where I grew up. But also there was gangs. There was people dealing drugs and those types of things. I never thought twice, you know, that fighting was bad. And when I got in trouble for fighting, I'm like, why? I was defending myself. Right. It wasn't until, you know, middle school that I was getting bullied. And this is in the book and I'll share a little bit about it, but I was getting bullied. And my brother, usually I had an older brother who would back me up every time something would happen. And I got in this fight in San Jose. And I remember that I was terrified of this person, but I just started swinging at him. And I can remember to this day, the images of people like looking at me and cheering me on and how it shifted something inside of me. Like, whoa, like this is really who I am. I'm this person that you're going to respect me through my fist. And so that was what shaped me into really start fighting. That was probably in sixth grade. I was probably about 13 years old or 12 years old when I really knew that not only was it to protect myself, but it was also to get what I wanted with fighting. 
You know, and what stood out to me about your book, especially in the early chapters, is it felt to me as the reader like this disconnect between Danny on the inside and Danny on the outside. And for different reasons, like it sounded like there were times that you wanted to feel something, but instead of being able to like create experiences where you could feel that connection or that love or that support, you said that you would actually like it seemed like you would do things that would push people away. And then that same piece of acting out or being the class clown or you know, whatever side of yourself or persona or whatever it is that came out that got respect and attention in order to keep people from seeing what you believed was that you weren't intelligent, you weren't smart. And I loved the way that you shared that because I think that that's true for everyone in different ways. Like we all have this inner part of ourselves that we want people to see and somehow we manage to keep them from seeing it. Or we have these pieces that we work really, really hard to hide away from the world. And I know that I don't know you well, but from your writing, from the brief interaction we've had so far, like I can tell that you have such a big caring heart. And obviously you do. You're doing such amazing work with children that's so needed that we all could have used when we were younger. And I would love if you could share a little bit about that. Like, what was it like to step more into this persona, this side of yourself that was big and powerful and aggressive or, you know, however you would define it. Also knowing that on the inside, like there was very much like a softness to you. You nailed it. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to have relationships. I didn't know how to have deep relationships because they weren't in my home. My parents, I can't remember much of their marriage and it wasn't very like loving in the sense of like, you know, this is our family, like, hey, let's go for a picnic or something like that. It just seems to shift all the time from yelling or then talking. And then I don't even remember hugging a lot, my dad. And so I think that's part of what shaped that of me, but I really long for it. Later on in my book, I share how I watched my dad with my younger siblings. I was a teenager already and I was looking at my younger siblings, which are much younger than me, like crawling all over him. And I wanted that so bad, but I had to be the tough guy. I had to be the guy that could fight. And I didn't want to show that to anybody. We all have dreams, right? Everybody has a dream what they want to do. And I wanted to be a doctor or a firefighter because I know people in those occupations helped other people. I looked at my community and I knew that my community needed help. And I thought, I got I want to help them. But, you know, somewhere between like fourth and sixth grade, those dreams died. That persona brought me a lot of attention because people liked that I could fight. They liked that I can back them up. They liked feeling protected. It made me feel like I did something right because I went through school having all Fs. You could tell I have a lisp. Everybody made fun of my lisp all the time. Like there was just everything negative. So when it came to fighting, that was something for me that was positive. Like I'm in control. And if I'm not, I'm going to put myself in a position of control. I would fight, win or lose, whatever it took. I demanded respect from people. I mean, that could, that wears you out. It was a difficult tension, you know, inside of my heart. Because again, anytime people got close to me dating or whether it's family or friends, there was always that tension there that I had to be this person. That was tough. I hurt my friends and a lot of broken relationships and family because of that. A lot of that is why I want to build a newer relationship with the people that I work with, with students and build relationship and community with them that's positive, you know, because I think I see me and a lot of young people that I work with in some areas of where we live, there is a lot of tension. Children are sponges. They do what they see. And I have the amazing opportunity to step in and teach them, hey, we have another way. And it's so, so important. I can't wait to talk more about your work because I'm so passionate about bringing this type of work to kids when they're at a certain age before they get caught up in everything. But 
We'll get to that because yeah. I want to chat a little bit more about, and I love how vividly you describe that moment, like remembering people cheering you on when you're fighting and, and how that shaped you and continued to evolve. I would, this is kind of my personal curiosity because this stuff is stuff that I'm passionate about, stuff that I find very interesting. Did you feel like at any point, because you went through a lot, like multiple stabbings, being incarcerated, like there was a lot of violence and fighting. There was a lot that was going on in your life. Very chaotic. At any point, do you feel like you just completely lost sight of your heart or did you always kind of feel it in there at some level? I drank a lot. So I I covered that, the sensitive part of me. There was a real sensitive part of me and I I couldn't handle it a lot of my life. It was very difficult to handle because being sensitive meant to open up and I didn't want to open up to anybody because I didn't want to get hurt. I think the divorce and my relationships that my mom and dad had outside of, you know, when after they were divorced really affected me deeply that I couldn't trust anybody. And the things that happened to me personally, you know, I've been abused, physically abused, sexually abused. I would never let myself be in that position again. The more that I grew, I, I wanted to protect myself, you know, I because those things happened when I was younger and when I was vulnerable or when I was high out of my mind. And I'm like, I'm never going to let this stuff happen to me again. I'm going to be on high alert every second. No one's going to hurt me again. It's getting a little emotional because I think about where I came from and, and, and the healing that's been happening, you know, in my life. And it's still a process, right, through our entire life, you know, the Absolutely. healing part of it. But, uh, yeah, so I, I covered it with alcohol. And it came out and drunk in nights, crying alone in my home. I burned so many bridges. I remember many Christmases alone in a rented camper with 240 ounces of alcohol, drinking myself to sleep because nobody wanted me around. But I created that for myself. What I love so much about this show and the people that I get to talk to is sometimes I just stop and think like, it's amazing that so many of us are just like walking around in the world (laughs) with everything that we've been through because, and, and I think about some of my clients who have been through things that if they were to share them, it would sound completely made up. Like it's just so horrific and awful what we go through as humans in so many different ways. And the fact that you kept going and the, and, and we find ways, right? Like we have our coping mechanisms and we learn ways to move through the world to keep going. And I know you said that you had suicide attempts. If you're open to sharing a little bit about what kind of those darker points in your life were, I would love to hear about that. That's something that I relate to in my own way. And I know other people do as well as like hitting those points of rock bottom where it's like, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And and what was, what were those experiences like for you? In the book, I share about my first time being incarcerated and I was in juvenile hall. And I, I remember when I was convicted of a felony and I was like 13 or 14 years old. And I'm like, my life is over. Like, I didn't even care. I remember those moments in my life where things had happened to me. Like, what am I going to do with myself? Like, I'm just going to be a convict. I'm uneducated. I'm I just, what's going to happen with my life? I didn't fear death. I would flirt with death a lot. I, you know, the fights. I've been in car accidents, many car accidents. Like, honestly, if I look back at my life, it, there's a lot of pain, not just fighting, not just emotional, like drunk driving, being in the car as it's, you know, flipping, just so many different things that have happened to me. The stabbings, I've been stabbed 11 times, you know, but none of those were like a wake up call for me. It's just like, I I was like, bring it on, bring it on. I don't care. Like, I didn't care whether I lived or died. And my family and friends knew it. They didn't think I'd live past 21. You know, a lot of my family was, you know, like, you're not going to make it. What triggered me, I think the biggest was when a friend of mine committed suicide. We weren't super close, but, you know, I'd be at his house a lot and we'd hang out, we'd talk. And and I remember hearing one day that he committed suicide. My, 
another mutual friend of ours found him. And, and I really got obsessed with it at that moment. I was obsessed with it. I already had thought about it before and flirted with suicide, but it was like an obsession at that point. Every thought imaginable, like, what did it feel like? You know, is, is he done with this? And, you know, everything. And so a few, like maybe like a week after that, I, I tried to commit suicide by taking pills, but I ended up vomiting them out. I cut my wrist. And I was cutting a lot, myself a lot, you know, I wanted to hang myself and a friend of mine found me, you know, getting ready to do that. And just those type of things. It was, it was interesting because part of me wanted to get be found so people would know the pain that I'm going through. Yeah. And then part of me was like, I don't care, you know, but it was now that I'm thinking about it too. It's like, I did want to be found. There was people home when I did it, you know, when I tried to overdose on pills or when I was in the friend's garage, they were all outside partying when I was doing that. We're just drinking when I made myself a makeshift noose in this garage. And I just didn't care. I just felt like nobody loved me. The part, the deep part inside of me just really wanted somebody to genuinely care for me. I think we all feel like that, right? We all feel like we want to be loved and we want to be, you know, um, supported. And But there was none of that going on. So, you know, that was a really a dark stretch of my life. And alcohol and drugs added to the fire of that constantly thinking about constantly putting myself in these situations and i think the things that really pushed me over the edge were broken relationships you know i went from um dating breakup dating breakup i had a son at 17 and i thought that would fix everything but of course it, it didn't i was still in the same mindset i was i felt like the only escape was you know death and again i just mm-hmm. like if i was in a situation you know that something happened to me it didn't it didn't bother me i think there's I know there's a lot of conversation about this out in the world, but that that conversation about how most people that are suicidal don't actually want to die. They just want the pain to end. Yeah. And I relate to that myself. And I actually had a suicide loss. That's what really started my big challenging chapter and just a ton of trauma and things that I went through. And it's just... It's such a confusing experience for people who aren't familiar with it. And I think it's also confusing if you're close to someone who commits suicide or has suicidal ideation and you don't understand that level of pain and that drive. And I I totally relate to the like wanting and it, it doesn't make any sense. Again, like I... It doesn't make any sense to, I think, to ourselves, especially, but also to the people around us that it's like, well, if you want love, why would you kill yourself if you yeah. want people to like, but that's just like the the frame of mind that we're in is such a different space. And the pain is unimaginable. And the desire for that to end is is such a driving part of it. And I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And I'm so glad that you're still here because you're clearly a lover and you clearly have so much to give to the world. And I would love if you could talk about when you hit a turning point and what that looked like for you. Because I know for some people, there's like moments that are like, oh. Like, you know, yeah. like they just like change us overnight. Yeah. And, and for some people, there's these like tiny moments that build. And what was it like for you? Yeah, you know, again, you nailed it. The pain you wanted it to end, you know, like I wanted that pain to end. And it was just that sense of emptiness. There was just like a void for me, you know, that I wanted to end. And there, and, you know, of course, again, I've been stabbed multiple times. Like I can't feel this part of my arm. There's probably nerve damage here. All over my body, I have these, you know, it's not, it wasn't one time, it was different fights and different things that had happened to me. When I was, I was stabbed in the kidney and I was in the hospital for two weeks, they had to do um, exploratory surgery on me. They had to, you know, to see where the damage was at. So they had to do this uh, surgery on me. And uh, I remember that didn't even change me. It was like less than a week I was out, I was drinking, the car accidents, other near-death experiences, I just didn't care. But when I was about 29 years old, I was I was on parole. I was in and out of the justice systems. That's another thing. That's a whole other trauma besides this, you know, because the things that 
you have to do to survive when you're incarcerated, you know, that help you to live, you know, help you to be successful in, in that life or not. You don't use those in the real world, you know. And I remember the first time I was incarcerated, when I got out, I got 30 days for, I was uh, with somebody, an older kid, I think I was 14, and he snatched a purse and um, they identified me as a person that did it. And, and before I was even, you know, went to court or anything, I was in juvenile hall and I had to stay there for 30 days. And I'm claustrophobic. They locked me in a room. There was a, a lot of trauma that happened there. And then, because I'm banging on the door screaming, then I had to defend myself because people were making fun of me the next day. So I fought every day you know, when I was incarcerated. And I, I remember just the day that I got out, like the world outside had just, you know, kept going, but something really shifted in me. For 13 years about, I was in and out of the, the justice system every year. And I was on parole. So I was about 29 years old and I was on parole and um, I wasn't allowed to drink, of course, not do drugs, right? And the day before my parole officer, I knew I had an appointment the next day and a friend came over and offered me drugs. And of course I couldn't say no. And I heavily drank all night. And the next morning I was panicking because um, I violated my parole. I'm gonna share this with you. When I went to prison for the first time, I did about maybe a, a little bit over a year out of 16 months. The first day I got out, I drank and I was charged with absconding, which means I just took off, never reported my parole officer. 28 days later, I went back to, to prison. They sent me. I was San Quentin, you know, and then get out. I go to Folsom Prison for absconding for a violation of parole. I get out of Folsom Prison on Friday. I'm back in incarcerated by Monday. That's how things were going. So this is where my life was at. Like I'm, I'm in my, my, my late twenties. I'm doing nothing with my life. Now there's, a, I'm going to go back probably to prison, you know, for a violation of parole. So someone had mentioned, there's, you know, people that are in and out of being incarcerated talk about, you know, if you drink baking soda, it'll clean out your system. Right. So I remembered that and I said, well, you know what? I need to drink a lot of baking soda because I am, <laughs> You know, I need to clean my system out because I have like two hours before a parole officer comes. So I just poured baking soda into water and started just downing it, downing it. And then I started to vomit and I kept vomiting and I couldn't stop and I started to shake. And I remember, um, I remember the vomit, it started to look like a dark blood and I started to like shake and I'm like, and I'm getting dizzy and I'm getting like, am I going to pass out? Am I dying? Like what's, what's happened to me at this moment? And I remember... I fell to my knees and I, and you know, I had, I had an uncle who was, you know, in and out of the justice system that became a pastor later and he would preach to me and I did not want to hear it at all. And, um, but I remember some of the words he said to me and people were saying to me and, you know, for me personally, like I just fell on my knees, my knees. And I said, God, if, if you're real, like help me. All these years I had flirted with death, but when I felt like I was going to die, I wanted to live. And I remember I called out to God. And I said, if you're real, can you help me, God? And I remember um, at that moment, I felt so alive. I never felt so alive in my entire life. From there, like, my life just changed. I felt sober at that moment. Like, I felt sober, emotionally sober, physically sober, just, like, deep, deep sobriety and freedom at that moment, like, where I felt like, wow. And that's what, that's what, that was my moment right there. I was in my mom's bathroom. No one was home. There's like blood all over the sink. I'm on the floor. I'm sweating. And I'm just like, oh, I'm alive. And that sparked something in me that like the shell broke off. And I, I remember that at that moment, it was changed. My, my faith, you know, in God and um, Jesus Christ changed me radically. You know, it just did something to me where 
I don't know. I can't explain the experience. It's so it was so powerful for me. That's beautiful. That gives me goosebumps. You know, I've had my very different, but I've had moments that are very divine. And I forget who writes about them, but there's someone who talks to them about breakthrough experiences and they show up for us in different ways. Sometimes they are near-death experiences. Sometimes they are random insignificant moments where you're just like wheeling your grocery cart through the store and the light hits it just right. You know, there's just all these different ways that it shows up. And I had my own when I was really depressed and was just like sobbing my eyes out. But there are these experiences and they're different for everybody. But there is that sense of awareness of ourselves, but also like that greater piece at play. And and for some people that's God and for yeah. some people that's universe, whatever it might be, but like that yeah. connection to the greater energy at play and ourselves is like such a transformational moment. So that gave me goosebumps. Thank yeah. you for sharing it. Yeah, I felt love. You know, I felt like a deep sense of love, you know? Yeah. Um, any other experience of love was, I think I thought it was like relationship, but this was something that just felt so, so real for me. But um, that was the moment. I, every time I think about it, it just, it just reminds me of freedom. It reminds me of love. It reminds me of newness. Um, every time I, I share that, that moment in my life, because it was powerful. I, I've been addicted as long as I can remember. And to be able to be free from addiction is like the most beautiful thing. Even like, because I, I get really obsessed with things. I would get really obsessed. If I drank, I drank until I passed out, blacked out, whatever it was, drugs, until they're gone. Like my heart's beating. I'm doing, you know, crystal meth and I'm, you know, shaking. As far back as I can remember, I, I've had that, you know, that addictive, you know, behavior. And it just, I felt so free. And again, that's where the, everything switched for me. My whole life switched around. Reorienting is like such a big topic on the show. And again, it's one of those things that's different for everyone, depending on their experience. What was it like for you to have such a transformational moment and to have that switch happen? And literally in the min- in the middle of playing out your same pattern in life, right? Like you had just violated your parole again. The whole reason that you got that sick is because you're trying to like course correct at the last minute and you had been in and out of the justice system. Like you really found a way to hit the brakes. And in doing so, like that transformational moment happened. What did it look like for you to really reorient to yourself as a person and to start reorienting to your life so that you could create something different? I left a lot of my old life friends immediately. I knew my influences. I knew, I I mean, I'm not saying I was a bad influence on a lot of others also, but you know, I, I, I removed myself for a time from where I know I'd be like tempted to get high or tempted, you know, because my friends weren't until everything. If you read my book, you know, there's breaking into homes, stealing cars, drive-bys. These are the people that I was hanging around with and I just removed myself from it. And people were like, what is wrong with you, dude? I mean, I had to change my, like my, my mindset. Like I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk like I talk anymore. I don't want to like think like I thought before. I had a girlfriend, like we broke up. I didn't, I just wanted to disconnect from that. I didn't know the word self-care at the time, but I I needed some self-care. You know, I needed some some a, a change in my life and so it was hard. I can think back and there's these memories I have. So I went to a church and they let me live in this big dorm and uh I volunteered as like the gardener and I would blow leaves. And I remember I'd have this this music. It was like Christian music, like positive music and and I was just singing along with it blowing leaves, you know, just happy. I was like <laughs> it was like the happiest moments of my life. Just I'm cleaning up and blowing leaves and doing things for other people. And I just, you know, one of the biggest things that helped me change was I was obsessed with myself. 
And I started to serve other people. And that helped me get my mind off myself. That was one of the biggest things was like at that time I was cleaning toilets. You know, I was earning my keep to live there, right? I didn't have a job or anything. I was, you know, talking to people as an usher. I was just doing everything and serving other people at the time. And, and it really helped me to um, get off myself, you know. There was a lot of um, obsession with myself and what I'm going through. And I understand we have to self-analyze, right? But I was just in my head all the time. So it took a while. I would read when I was incarcerated. I started reading a lot of, you know, books, you know, about theology and about the Bible and things like that. And it was interesting because just in general reading, it like expands your vocabulary and then your comprehension. Totally. And so like, I'm like, well, what's happening here? Like I'm understanding and I'm able to talk without dropping an F-bomb every second. I mean, I wasn't thinking, that wasn't the reason I was reading. I just was so interested in, you know, what I was learning. But I started to read, take care of myself more. And I mean, again, it was a long journey because, I mean, I didn't read a lot, you know, when I was in the streets as opposed to being incarcerated. So that was something that really helped me to kind of focus and, you know, listening to music. And it wasn't, you know, negative. It was positive and just those things. But it took time. It took a while for me to get out of that zone. I think like, you know, it took months for me to like not feel like I was high. I mean, I did so much drugs, you know, so I was doing cocaine, crystal meth, angel dust, which is like an elephant tranquilizer, alcohol every single day. So it's just like, I need to let my body rest from all these, these things. But yeah, the biggest thing I think was just serving other people and investing in myself, you know, reading and Focus. That's beautiful and such a big shift. And I guess like that again illustrates the power of those kind of breakthrough moments where, again, for some people, I don't want anyone listening to think, well, if I didn't have it just like change my life like that, I didn't have it. You can have a breakthrough experience and it can kind of take time to integrate. But in your situation, like such a huge transformation, that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot, even when it's happy and it's good. Yeah. Well, I want to share something about that too, because you know what? You have to be careful with that also, because like I burned myself out. That's why the book is Pain to Purpose to Peace, because I started to do so much for other people that I started to neglect myself and then was married, neglect my family. And you have to be careful with that. Like, again, I'm an obsessive person. So I constantly wanted to be in this zone of like serving. The freedom from addiction was immediate, but the process of changing took years. And even understanding like you don't always have to be on. I felt like I was always on at church, around people. I don't know where maybe watching other people. I had to be perfect all the time or, you know, that wore me out almost as much as my old life. That whole part of my life, it was great, like you said, to refocus, reorient. But then I became obsessed with that serving that it wore me out. Yeah. You know, I, I relapsed 11 years after I didn't drink. And that was really depressing because I, I was caught in that for a few years. I did get help. I went to an outpatient program that really helped me. Didn't only focus on addiction, but also like trauma and other things that I dealt with. It was like many layers of support that I received from the program that I went to, but I didn't realize that I was just wearing myself down. What would you say are some of the things that help you even today, like skills that you cultivated or tools and resources or even mentors and support systems that helped you find that balance and maintain it? And I know balance is one of those things that we talk about that's like, there's no such thing, yeah. but we strive for it, right? Like we strive to not be too far on the obsessive side in your case and too yeah. far on the like not caring at all, you know, like where's that healthy middle ground? What was that like for you? Yeah, for me, <laughs> 
you know, in the book I share that, you know, the opposite of trauma and pain is fun. And I try to have fun. I skateboard. <laughs> I'm 49 years old. I, love I that. 49. I uh, skate what's called vert, like in the pools or at skate parks. I, it's called carving, like roll around the pool. So I skateboard with my youngest son. I have five children. We have a blended family. But my youngest one skateboards with me. I take walks in the morning. I read. Because I, I start to get really overwhelmed a lot. It still happens to me now, and I get anxiety. COVID really affected me emotionally and physically because I was working out every day, you know, getting up. And then when the gyms closed, like, I completely stopped. And I started to, like, focus on eating. So now I'm, like, the things I do to kind of refocus is take walks, spend time with my family, skateboard. I'm, like, a, a serial, like, entrepreneur for the type of work that I do, like, a, you know. And so I'm always creating things. I love to create different programs and write different types of things. So those are the things that make, bring me joy in my life. Joy makes such a difference. It's something that I put into practice in my, what was it, mid-20s when I was trying to figure out how do I live a life where I'm not depressed all the time? Because yeah. I was very depressed growing up, very suicidal, very unhappy, didn't feel like I knew who I was or wasn't fulfilled by life or work. And like living my joy is a mantra for me. And, and it's something I've been working on again lately is like prioritizing joy. And that can, it seems so simple. It seems so basic, but it can make such a difference. Yeah, definitely. Cause like, even like just a little bit of time, like it's so funny. Like sometimes I'll be at work, right? Cause I'm, you know, at schools like all day and I'm constantly trying to train them because I know exactly what I want. Like on those campuses, what I needed. But in the middle of the day, I'll drive by a skate park and I'll just, I have my board in my car and I'll just ride <laughs> through the park real quick. And I'll, you know, just spend some time. If it's five minutes, 10 minutes and, I know everybody. If you come to San Jose and you go to a skate park and you say, Pastor Danny, uh, I am ordained. I'm an ordained pastor. Uh, if you say that, the kids will know who I am. But maybe 90% of them <laughs> will know me in the park because I go out there and, and hang out with them and have fun in our community here. I love to be out and doing that. That brings me joy. And I love when other people are happy because I wanted to, when I say I wanted to, in the beginning of our talk, you know, I wanted to be loved. I think I wanted people to see that I was valuable, that I wasn't this worthless, dumb ex-convict, this uneducated. I like to invest that into others too. I see value in everyone. I see value in everyone and everyone's gifted in some way. It's beautiful. And it's so true. And sometimes that's literally all we need. Like it's, it's not the solution for everything, but to have somebody see us and love us for exactly who we are, including and especially all of our imperfections and our failures and our flaws like that can go such a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, my moment of transformation and then people taking time you know, to spend with me and talk with me. If I was getting sat down somewhere, I was either in the principal's office, you know, or getting talked to about my homework, or I was a judge or a police officer. Nobody, I don't remember any of those moments not being in trouble, really. You know, nobody was like, caring and investing and you know when my life changed and the people at church people would talk to me and be interested in my life and want to know about me and i got to learn a lot about you know because all i knew was this area where i grew up and i started to learn more about you know outside of what i my area what, what other people were doing and it seems so far away the other side of town you know just seems so far away for me and it was interesting how all of that was bridged one thing we do also and i know you wanted to talk about this it's like when i work with students i want them to see outside their current circumstance. You know, when you're ready to talk about that, we can 
definitely talk about that. But yeah, yeah. no, let's let's do it. I want to talk about what you do, and and of course, we're going to link to everything in the show notes. But before you talk about that, like leading into talking about that, I would love if you could share a little bit about like when you started doing this work and what that looked like. Looking back, there was like you said, I had this love. I had this, I wanted to be loved, but I also wanted to give love and I didn't know how. And so, you know, like my whole life, you know, I covered that part of me. Like I had mentioned, I remember when I had that moment, I wanted all my friends to experience what I experienced, right? Maybe I wasn't the best at communicating when I first changed my life with my faith, but I wanted every person that I knew that was in some similar experience that I had in life to know that there's hope, that, to know that there's something different. And I knew that the things for me were like, again, would help me. It's like I had to change where I hung out, not drink, start to read, start to practice new things. And so I started to have opportunity to really meet people as an usher at church. I would stand at the door and I volunteered for three years being an usher at our church. And I love chit-chatting with people as they were coming in and out and learning about people and them talking to me. And then I had an opportunity to work with youth, with the children's ministry and um, sharing a little bit. And then I had an opportunity to work with middle school and high school. And that's where it really felt like that was my calling, you know, like what I wanted to do in life. They let me share my story with with the youth at the church I was at. And that's what really changed me. Like I wanted to be someone that could speak into the life and help guide and direct youth. So that started maybe three years after my life changed. I spent a long time, like the three years. It felt like an eternity for me, but for some people it might not be that long, but I spent all, a lot of time just working on myself. I think that I had opportunities to work with the youth as, at church and share with them and things like that. Like I was learning how to be a Bible teacher and all these things. I was introduced by one of the members of the church to the Mayor's Gang Prevention Task Force a few years after I got to church, maybe six or seven years after I got to church. When I learned about, like I already knew what my community was like, but I was kind of disconnected because I was in this different world. But then when I heard what was happening in my community, it just sparked something. I mean, like I need to give back to the where I came from. I need to go back. That's where really everything started to change. I think what helped shape me was spending time investing in myself and learning myself. I was a volunteer chaplain at a hospital. I would volunteer to go visit people and take food to people. So all these practices I had, you know, like listening to people, talking to people, I started to be able to use those working with the youth, you know, later on. It wasn't something that was planned. It was just something that I love to do. There was an opportunity for me to be a chaplain, at a, a volunteer chaplain at a hospital. So I went and helped people that were sick, talked to them and prayed with them. And Or when I was the usher, talking to people, some of them were elderly and were alone and they spent a lot more time talking to me about, you know, maybe they lost their wife or whatever it was. And I started to learn how to just really um, connect with people in that way. And um, we served the community by giving food out and stuff like that. So all of these practices I started to use in the work that I'm doing now, you know, that was like the birth of it. But again, none of it was planned. Not even being a pastor was planned. I would look at pastors speak and I remember I'm like, where did they even get that from? I couldn't even comprehend. (laughs) You're reading a book and you're telling me all this stuff, but like, I'm feeling it, but I don't know where you're getting it from. Like, so, you know, right. yeah. So the calling is when when I started to hear that people in my community were dying because in 2010, I got connected with the gang task force and our mayor at the time had invited the faith community. He wanted to invite us to, you know, create something that can be of service to the community. And I created a crisis response program for the city of San Jose. What we did was we'd respond to youth violence whether it was bedside intervention or homicide. And it was was and still is heartbreaking and terrible to be with a family and young people that are dealing with loss. In 2012, we had a 25-year high. 
we, we were one of the safest big cities wow. in America. I knew that was my calling. Like I, I, I could, I could not with a good conscience sit at church and be a pastor when people in my community were dying. I was, I was like, no, I, I, I need to be with the people out there. I need to share with them, but I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was a, been at church for eight years, nine years, you know, set, kind of separated from that life. But I really felt led to do that. And that's where it really was birthed into what I'm doing now. Because I was ordained, I would do, I would help with the funerals. A lot of the families, because I would work with them through their loss. We'd help, you know, spiritual care. We would get donations from churches. We would uh, get food and help them through the difficult times. They would ask me, can you share at this funeral? And I remember at one of the funerals, there was a young man. He was still in high school. He was 18 years old. He was shot and killed down the street wow. from his home. And he had a single dad who raised him. And I spent a lot of time with that father. He asked if I could share at his funeral. When it was time for people to come and share memories or you know, a few words about his life, it took two and a half hours. Usually it's like 10, 15 minutes. There were coaches, friends, and I looked out to the crowd and I really felt in my heart like God was telling me, like they're like sheep without a shepherd. I, I could smell marijuana, alcohol. I'm not saying everybody was drinking or smoking. People were crying. People were angry. People were just blank face. And it started to become evident to me what I needed to do. Like I needed to like work with these people. I didn't want to be there after. I needed to be there before and work in their lives. And it's funny because like after like I would be at like a McDonald's or something like these kids would come up to me like, oh, you're the priest who did my homie's funeral. You know, they would say you did Sleepy's funeral or you helped Flacco's family. You know, these are all like their nicknames, you know, their gang nicknames of the homicide victims. And and I started to be recognized as that person. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to use this to build relationships in my community and start investing in these kids and teaching them that there's another way like there was for me. I wanted to teach them that, you know what, like this doesn't have to be your life. It's painful and I know the pain and I'm going to share with you like how I got through this pain, overcame it and I'm able to get back. And it's funny now because the kids like they're like, oh, we want to do what you do. We want to like do the kind of work that you do. We want to help people. And there's been kids that have left gangs that we work with. There's been kids that, you know, were not on track to graduate. I remember how it started and just where it is right now, just to see like the success and people, you're talking about that moment when things click and to see it when they're younger. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. Oh my goodness. That's such a powerful journey. And it's such a powerful example of another thing we talk on the show is how life shapes us. Like life shapes us into the person that we're here to be and doing the work that we're here to do. And you're such a beautiful example of that. And I'm just so honored to have had you on the show. And I hate to end the conversation. I still have so many questions for you. But to wrap things up, since we're at the top of the hour, I would love if you could share where people can find you, how yeah. they can learn from you, and how they can work with you. So I am on Instagram, our organization. We are the City Peace Project, at the City Peace Project. They get our YouTube, the City Peace Project, thecitypeaceproject.com. Also, there's links to my book. My book is on Amazon. It is Post-Traumatic Quest, My Quest to Transcend Trauma, Turn My Pain to Purpose and Find Peace. They can also buy it from posttraumaticquest.com. Also, you know, if people are interested in what we're doing, just watch or follow our Instagram. You'll see these kids and what we're doing, the things that I'm talking about. Like, there's so many different experiences they have. Like, if I could just share one more thing, you know, coming back after COVID, there was a lot of tension coming back on the high school campuses. And I remember the first day I got back on the campuses here, like in the 12 years I've done this type of work, there's never been any people that have disrespected me, but this year just seemed different. People were guarded. A lot of our students have been isolated from friends, from other family members. And I was like, 
how do I break this wall? There seems like so much tension. There was a lot of fights on campuses. So <laughs> we started, what's the way to the heart? The stomach, right? <laughs> so we started to bring <laughs> pizza and chips. And, and we just said, hey, if you want a bag of chips, you got to throw a peace sign. We, we call it proactive peace picking on campuses. So <laughs> if you see our Instagram, we are more than just, you know, giving out pizza. We do mentoring. We do life coaching. We do conflict you know, resolution. And, you know, we just help kids in goal setting with students, help them get on track and stuff like that. But if you want a visual of what we do, just check out at the City Peace Project, the City Peace Project on Instagram. There's a lot on there. And the videos you'll see on YouTube. You can also, on my personal Instagram is at Pastor Danny underscore Sanchez. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. I wish that we had more time to chat and that you could share more of your wisdom. But Danny, thank you so much for being here, for sharing just like a, it feels like such a small portion of what you've been through and what you've learned from it, but it's so powerful. And I know that there's a lot of people that are going to get a lot out of this. And I'm so grateful. Like I said, I, I think it's really important. One of our missions which is coming in the near future is to start bringing curriculum into schools and to kids because it's just so critical. If I would have had these skills when I was younger, if you would have had these skills when you were younger, like our lives could have been a lot different. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, I just, it's an opportunity to share that you know, lives can be changed, you know, and I think because people that are incarcerated, there's 80% chance of recidivism. I was a statistic, but I changed, Yeah, you know? I was able to remove myself from that life and do what I do now. And I really appreciate the opportunity that you've given me to share this with others. We have this time right now, but you know, if they want to learn more about what we're doing, you can definitely look, look us up at citypeaceproject.org. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv free, including access to my signature process for how to make the impossible happen, packaged in a simple, easy-to-follow workbook that you can implement immediately. Whether you're trying to heal in the aftermath of a challenging chapter, working to uncover your purpose, or going after anything else that feels impossible, you'll learn how to take an entirely different kind of action that goes against much of what you've been taught about manifestation and goal achievement. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community. So please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.